It is truly a privilege to be bringing the Word of God to you today. This is the last sermon in our summer sermon series in the Psalms. I can't believe that it's Labor Day weekend already. That just seems crazy. Um, Pastor Luke plans to be back in the pulpit here next week. And this morning we're going to take a look at not just one psalm, but two psalms. Uh, The first psalm is Psalm 14, and I'll give you a minute to find it in your Bible or in your Bible app. Psalm 14. If you you are able, please stand again, and I will read the text. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The second psalm is Psalm 53, and it might sound a lot like a psalm that you may have heard recently. I'll give you a moment to find Psalm 53, and I'll read the text. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you because you are God. And we thank you for not leaving us to our own devices. Thank you for giving us the Bible, your word, that we can read it and hear it. And we pray that your your word will not return to you void, but that it will accomplish what you have sent it out to accomplish. Amen. Please take a seat. Thanks for being so patient with all the standing. So these are two different psalms, both written by David, and they're almost identical. And so we wonder, what's going on here? Did maybe the rough draft of the psalm get into the Bible as well as the final version? But that is not what happened. If it's been preserved in the Bible, we can be confident that God wanted both of these psalms to be there for his people to read and to hear and to sing. The psalms were songs that the Israelites would sing. Both psalms have the same first sentence 
and it's a strong one. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. If you don't believe in God, you're a fool. Why? The second verse of both Psalms tells us, and I'll continue reading from Psalm 53, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Why are you a fool if you don't believe in God? Because you don't understand. If you lack understanding, then you think and act foolishly. Is the Bible talking here about people who don't have the mental capacity to understand? No, it's not. To get a better understanding, sorry, I couldn't resist that. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppression of the truth. If you suppress the truth, you lack understanding. If you don't believe the truth, what do you believe? A lie. It is foolish to suppress the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Isn't that something? You know that God exists. And you know it because God has shown you that he does. If you say there is no God, you deny reality. You suppress the truth. You're a fool. Verses 20 through 22. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Foolish at heart and futile in thinking, because they know God exists, but they suppress the truth. The study notes in the Reformation Study Bible, edited by R.C. Sproul et al., say this, God will not allow human beings to suppress entirely their sense of God and of his judgment. Some sense of right and wrong, as well as of accountability to God, always remains. Even in the fallen world, everyone is endowed with a conscience that from time to time condemns them, telling them that they ought to suffer for the wrongs they have done. When conscience speaks in these terms, it speaks with the voice of God. Now, when we read the fool says in his heart there is no God, probably most of us look at that word fool and we think of a person who lacks wisdom. And that's appropriate. But there's also another way to look at the word fool. It can also indicate somebody who is morally bankrupt. The morally depraved person is also a fool. Here's a revealing illustration of how us foolish humans respond to God from Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. It says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, 
pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. And this is not new, of course. This started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve rejecting God's rule over them, wanting to make their own determination of good and evil. We find the beginning of that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And on the day they ate of it, they became spiritually dead. They became the enemies of God, they and the entire human race after them. And the morally depraved person says there is no God as a way of making excuses for their sin. We still don't want our sin to be judged. We still don't want to submit to God's authority. What better way to avoid being, to, being judged than to declare that there is no judge? Peter addresses this in his second letter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Why do they scoff? Why do they say, where is the promise of his coming? Because they want to follow their own sinful desires. Oh, they've been saying for 2,000 years that Jesus is coming back. I don't see that happening. I'm just going to live my life morally bankrupt and lacking in wisdom, depraved and suppressing the truth. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, please allow me to suggest to you that there are also people who think that there is a God who are also foolish. I'd say it's also foolish to believe that God exists, but to live as if he doesn't. Oh, sure, I believe in a creator, but we can't really know him. Yeah, I mean, so what's the difference? You know, I suppose, I suppose we'll find out at the end. That's also foolish. Or similarly, to believe in God and think that that's enough. Well, I believe in God. That's all that matters, right? God is love, right? I believe in that. I believe in a good, loving God. God loves me. That's all I need, right? Also foolish. Acknowledging the existence of God is important, of course. But that's not all we need, is it? James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And James is there obviously calling to the reader's attention Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the first sentence of the Jewish daily prayers. And it was typically the, the first verse of scripture that a Jewish child would learn. And James says, that's a good thing. 
But even the demons believe that God exists, and they even know that he is one God. Knowing that God exists is a very necessary first step, but it is not the whole journey. Romans 10 verse 2 says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So we can believe that God exists and even have a zeal for him and not know him. What about believing that there is a God and that there are many paths to him? Also foolish. John 14.6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or to believe in God and to believe even that Jesus died for your sins so that you have a license to sin. I mean, go ahead, right? I mean, Jesus died for your sins, so you'll be forgiven, right? Also foolish. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 and 16 say, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Or to believe in God uh, as your business partner, or your provider, or your protector? You pray to say thank you, which is good, and to ask for things, which is fine, but it's all about making your life comfortable. He is only your provider and protector. That's also foolish. 1 Corinthians 15:19 says, "If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied." Or to believe in God and so you work hard to keep the commandments and to be righteous so that you'll get to go to heaven. You think that if you're good enough, you'll be acceptable to God. That's also foolish. For Romans 3 says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Which brings us back to our Psalms. Let's look at Psalm 53 again. Remember verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. None who does good. And then perhaps to make sure that we haven't missed it, David expands on the idea in verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And what does God see? Verse 3. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Wow. There is none who does good, not even one. That's a strong statement too. But that is the human condition. Ever since Adam and Eve rejected God in the Garden of Eden, choosing to disobey him, there are no people in their natural condition who do good, not even one. We are lost and dead, helpless and hopeless. 
So to think that you can be good enough to be acceptable to God is also foolish. Which brings us to verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge? (laughs) Apparently not. Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? They sin against God and against each other, against other people, exploiting others, serving their own selfish desires, and it's as natural for them to do that as it is to eat. And what is the outcome for them? Verse 5, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Aha! There is a judge. God will judge evil. What is this terror where there is no terror? The Bible has examples of people who were in great terror where there was no terror. Remember when Israel had an army of about 32,000 soldiers and God whittled that army down to 300 men and he armed them with torches and trumpets and sent them against the Midianite army. Judges chapter 7 starting with verse 20 says, Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. 300 guys with torches and trumpets and thousands upon thousands of soldiers panicked and ran and in their panic they killed each other. Great terror where there is no terror. That's the destiny of the enemies of God just like the Midianites. And then it says, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. Against whom? Against God's chosen people. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. So ultimately, God's chosen people will be victorious, and God's wrath will come upon his enemies, for God has rejected them. That terror is quite warranted. The scattering of bones is a symbol of shame and disgrace. It's one thing to lose the battle, but to have fought honorably and to die an honorable soldier's death and to be buried honorably in an honorable soldier's grave. And it's quite another thing for the losing army to be utterly decimated and have their bones scattered all over the battlefield and to have their bodies left out there for the animals to eat. And the psalmist is creating a picture of this kind of ignominy and humiliation. So it's not just terror where there is no terror. Obviously, there is legitimately something to fear here. Obviously, you don't want to be rejected by God. But again, that is the human condition. There is none who does good, not even one. And then in the last verse of Psalm 53, David prays for the Messiah, the Savior. 
prays for the Messiah to come and make things right and to bring salvation. Verse 6, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Now remember who Jacob is. Two generations before Jacob, God chose a man named Abram out of all the people in the world and changed his name from Abram to Abraham, and God covenanted with Abraham. Remember, a covenant is a contract, and it can be a contract where where both parties agree to do something, or it can be a unilateral contract where only one party states what they will do for the other. And God covenanted with Abraham to bless him and promised him that he would be the father of many nations, and he promised him that his descendants would occupy the promised land, and that all the people of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Then God chose Abraham's son Isaac over Abraham's firstborn son Ishmael. And God gave the covenant promises to Isaac. And then God chose Isaac's son Jacob over Isaac's firstborn son Esau and changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And God covenanted with Israel and promised that God's covenant with Abraham would be fulfilled through Israel. And David prays, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And now Zion can refer to the whole city of Jerusalem in general. Or it can be more specific things. It can mean the place where God's temple was, the place where God condescended to dwell with his people. Psalm 132.13 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Zion can refer to the hill, Mount Zion, which David conquered and where he built his palace and where he had his throne. And we know that God covenanted with David, promising that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever. 2 Samuel 7.16 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And remember the angel's words to Mary, recorded in Luke 1. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." David's prayer was answered. Salvation for God's people has come out of Zion, hasn't it? If God had not decided to condescend to dwell with his people, there could be no salvation. Without God's intervention, we are lost and dead, helpless and hopeless. God's Son did come in the flesh, was not a fool, lived a life of total obedience to the Father, died in your place, in my place, in Jerusalem, in Zion, taking the punishment that we deserved, the wrath of God for our sin. And then he walked out of his grave in Jerusalem, in Zion, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in Jesus, God takes our sin, and in exchange, he gives us the righteousness of Jesus. He includes us in his chosen people, even described in the Bible as being grafted into that vine. 
By his mercy and his grace, God gives eternal life to the believer. And Jesus will rule on the throne of David forever. And yes, God's chosen people will rejoice. We will be glad. I almost wish that there were stronger terms here. Because by this point of the psalm, the word glad barely seems an adequate adjective. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And the sermon could stop there. And maybe some of you wish it would. And we could go home thinking what a wonderful thing God has done for us in these two psalms. He's reminded us that the fool says there is no God. And he's let us know that none of us is good without his intervention. And that the unbeliever will receive the wrath of God. And that those who are born again to new life in Christ will dwell with him forever in joy and gladness. But there's something else that fascinates me about these psalms. And that is the slight differences between them. And maybe I'm more interested in this than what is warranted, but I think the differences are really something. To best convey what fascinates me about them, I'd like to go back and look at Moses at the burning bush and then go back to the Garden of Eden. So Moses first. Remember when Moses met God at the burning bush and God told him to go back to Egypt and demand that Pharaoh let the Israelites go? This is in Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to start with verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God told Moses his name. God tells us his name. The fool says in his heart there is no God. But God says of himself, I am. And in our English Bibles where it reads, I am, those are all uppercase letters. And where it says in the scripture, I am who I am, those are all uppercase letters. And where it says in verse 15, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers. The name L-O-R-D, Lord, is all uppercase letters, all capital letters. And wherever it shows in our modern English Bibles the name Lord in all uppercase letters like that, that's there in place of four Hebrew letters that we would call Y-H-W-H. We might pronounce that Yahweh. And the name means I am. And the reason it is spelled Lord, L-O-R-D, in our Bibles, instead of Y-H-W-H, is because the Israelites would say Adonai, or Lord, when they came to the word Yahweh in the scripture, to make extra sure that they would not break the commandment against taking that name in vain. So when you read in the Bible something like, may the Lord bless you, and the Lord is all capital letters like that, 
you know that the original, in the original language it said, may Yahweh bless you. This is what God told Moses his name is. This is a personal name. We know, we can know God and we can have a relationship with him. It's an intimate name. It's a covenant name. God covenanted with Moses, again promising to bring them into the promised land and that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that they would be separate from the other nations of the world. And God gave his law to that nation through Moses. Now before Moses, the Bible records that this covenant name Yahweh was used by Noah and Abraham and by Eve. And now let's go back to the Garden of Eden. The first chapter of Genesis is an overview of creation. It starts out with verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it continues to explain that God, what God created on each of the six days of creation. And then the, the first three verses of chapter 2 explain that on the seventh day, God rested from creation. And up until this point, God is referred to as God. But then beginning with the fourth verse of chapter 2, God is called Lord God, with L-O-R-D being in all uppercase letters, as we've talked about. God is called by his personal, intimate, covenant name, Yahweh God. And this continues in, in chapter 2, verse 5, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, Verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And this continues that way so that it's all L-O-R-D, uppercase letters, God, all Yahweh God, in chapter 2, 11 times. And then once more at the top of chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And then the serpent talks. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now we know because we've read it so many times or heard it so many times that what the devil is doing here is he's trying to get Eve to doubt what God has said and even get, get Eve to doubt God himself. And the approach is subtle. He doesn't just come out and say, God's lying to you. You shouldn't believe God. But I find it interesting that the serpent doesn't call him Yahweh. Could that be part of the subtlety? And no, this is not my original idea. I can't take credit for it. But it really makes me think, you know. So picking up with verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, of the, I'm sorry, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, and now Eve says it, just God, not Yahweh God. Perhaps she started to follow the devil down his subtle trail. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So all the subtlety is gone now. 
Just a bald-faced lie. You will not surely die. This God isn't the personal Yahweh God you think you know. Deep down, he's really evil. He's keeping all the good stuff from you, and he's lying to you about it. You won't die, but wham! They did die, didn't they? We did die, didn't we? And now back to Psalms 14 and 53. They're almost identical, which makes the small differences between them very interesting to me. The first difference is that in Psalm 53, God is only referred to as God. But in Psalm 14, there are four times when God is called by the covenant name Lord with all uppercase letters, Yahweh. The second difference is that in Psalm 53, it says, There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. While in Psalm 14, the one that uses God's covenant name four times, it says, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. In Psalm 53, it speaks of terror and the enemies of God being put to shame and their bones being scattered, for God has rejected them. Psalm 14 also says the enemies of God will be in terror. But then it says that God is with the righteous and Yahweh is his refuge. And to me, that's worth pondering. Either God will be to you only terror and judgment, or the Lord God will be to you salvation, and life. Do you acknowledge that God exists? Well, okay, fine. But is God with you? Are you with God? Has God covenanted with you? Is Yahweh your refuge? Refuge from what? From the bad stuff in the world? Sure. But more importantly, far more importantly, from the wrath of God. The only refuge from the wrath of God is in God. Do you realize that? We sang Rock of Ages, let me hide myself in thee, right? Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord, all capital letters, is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Acknowledging the existence of God is good, but do you find yourself in Christ? I'd like to finish with an old quote from John Piper. John Piper said, the reason God's covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David ought to increase the joy of our faith is that in all of them, the main point is that God exerts all his omnipotence and all his omniscience to do good to his people. And we are that people if we follow Christ in the obedience of faith. The most practical truths any Christian can know are that God is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-for-you. 
heartfelt confidence that the sovereign God is working everything together for your good out of sheer grace affects every area of your life. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us, that you have not left us to our own devices, that you have given us salvation in Christ, life in you where there was no life in us. We praise you, God, for being our refuge. We thank you that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we praise you that you are glorified in these things. Amen.